the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, the ACCC full inquiry into supermarkets and supply chains where farmers and consumers may be being dudded. We'll find out more about that inquiry. And uh, we also look at a few honourable mentions in the Australia Day honours list and hear from this rural mental health advocate. For in the bush, who the hell do we listen to? And often we listen to the advice or information given to us by our peers, our our mates. The philosophy, I suppose, comes back to the fact that mates, we understand mates subconsciously as people who will share and care about you in the good times, but they also definitely care about you in the bad times. We'll hear more uh, from John Harper shortly on the program and also you might have some thoughts about the inquiry. You can send us a text, the ACCC inquiry into supermarkets announced yesterday, 0467 It's uh, They can um, uh, do a whole range of things. You might have heard some of the detail there. You might have some views about that. Maybe you can share... Uh, some of your stories about how the supermarkets have treated you if you're involved in the farm sector and concerns you may have, you can send us a text 0467922684. That's the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up, the Prime Minister yesterday revealed Australia's consumer watchdog will conduct an inquiry into supermarkets uh, with the full powers to investigate the whole supply chain as well and demand full discovery of documents and even subpoena witnesses to give evidence uh, if necessary. Here is the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Today I announce that the Treasurer will be directing the ACCC to conduct a 12-month price inquiry into the supermarket industry. The ACCC has significant powers and it is the best and most effective body to investigate supermarket prices. For me, it's this simple. When farmers are selling their product for less supermarkets should be charging Australians at the checkout less. Now, the depth and breadth of the ACCC investigation has been welcomed by the New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin. He says they've been agitating for this sort of investigation for many, many years, feeling that farmers are getting shortchanged and also so are the wider community. He says the lack of competition and monopolies need to be held to account. Oh, look, New South Wales Farmers has been leading out on this for years and uh, we've been growing increasingly uh, concerned that uh, the sort of re- a reality that consumers are facing is similar to what farmers are facing and that is it, that lack of fairness in pricing. So we welcome the announcement by the Prime Minister of the ACCC inquiry into the supermarket sector and it must be the whole sector, right from the paddock through to the checkout. Uh, just what is happening. And, uh, look, we're very pleased that New South Wales farmers' calls have been heard. And the coalition, you know, uh, they're saying, oh, it should have happened sooner. But, I mean, there was calls going back, I remember, for the coalition to do this, and they just fell on deaf ears then. Oh, look, there was findings from the ACCC inquiry in 2020, Mm. perishable ag goods, and uh, they could have helped a lot, uh, particularly mandating instead of expecting the supermarkets to voluntary here to codes um, you know but unfortunately those uh, recommendations were just left under the curtains in the corner somewhere and uh, you know a whole lot of people across Australia consumers and farmers 
feel that those should have been actioned and we're going to be right on the case of this inquiry to make sure that the government does deal with the recommendations and, and implement their, their recommendations out of, the, out of the inquiry. So we need to look at the whole supply chain, not just supermarkets, but also all the middlemen as well, because uh, you know, there's, a, there's a concern that you know, there's, people are pay, pay, taking profits all the way and consumers and farmers are the ones that are, are bearing the brunt. Exactly. It needs to uh, look at some of these monopolies or near monopolies in the supply chain, whether it's logistics, whether it's school stores, uh, you know, distribution centres, freight. So not just the supermarkets, is it? No, it's not. And, and look, I think the Senate inquiry late last year when that was announced, I think they realised it was a whole chain and, and certainly uh, to some extent the Dr Emerson inquiry that the Prime Minister announced a few weeks back but, I mean, the major problem with both those, though, is, um, you know, they don't have the powers, they don't have the teeth to compel witnesses and facts, the actual contracts, to turn up on the table. Which the ACCC can. They can subpoena records and ask for evidence. Exactly. And that's what we want is, a, is an accurate, outcome-focused inquiry that gets to the bottom of why farmers and families are being failed by uh, this whole, you know, billions of dollars of profit just being gouged out of our sector. It almost seems as though there's been a bit of a closed shop. I mean, Mick Keogh's been saying, you know, that they asked for information and basically no one came forward because they were scared of repercussions. Oh, look, I've had farmers in quite an emotional state face-to-face say to me, you know, they cannot uh, cope with the pressure they're being put under to not disclose uh, by either their brokers or the, or when they're dealing directly with the supermarkets. I mean, it's just unconscionable behaviour that's been going on. and so It's like the got, mafia. It's like organised crime. Well, it's certainly very concerning, and that's why we need to get to the bottom of it, just what's being done, because at, at, at the moment we've got this unfair circumstance where the farmers are getting pushed out. They're not using their land water for their best or even second best purpose sometimes they, they can't afford to to use it for that at the prices that have been offered so the land and water aren't being used appropriately and yet at the checkout the consumer's been asked an extraordinary price sometimes three five ten even twenty times what the farmer's been paid new south wales farmers president xavier martin now the australian competition and consumer commission they're going to conduct that inquiry into the australian supermarket sector including the pricing practices of the supermarkets and the relationship between wholesale and retail prices now the prime minister as we heard earlier he announced that treasurer jim chalmers will direct the ACCC to conduct the 12-month review which will investigate the difference between farm gate prices and checkout prices and also all the way down the supply chain as well. Deputy Chair of the ACCC, Mick Keogh, explains what the process of this inquiry would be. On receipt of the notice, we would set up a team that would work on the project. We would usually release an issues paper identifying the the key issues we want to hear from people about. And that would create the opportunity for submissions from a a wide range of different interest groups. At the same time, we would probably start identifying what we think the key markets are that we want to have a look at. And uh, then we would progress to issuing notices seeking specific information from particular parties. They then have an opportunity timeframe to compile the information and respond to us that 
may be repeated. We may we may go to a second request for information, and then we would start. We have a fairly well credentialed uh, special data unit that is very adept at putting all that information together and making sense of it. And uh, from there, we would start analysing and. Uh, it's forecast that we would produce an interim report sometime during the middle of the year and then a final report just after the end of the year. So it's quite a detailed and involved process, but uh, one we think that is very useful in terms of getting to the bottom of what's going on in uh, a range of different supply chains. One of the supply chains, obviously, is the relationship between farmers and the supermarkets. So will farmers be able to give evidence or submit documents to the inquiry anonymously, potentially? Because we know there's obviously commercial risk for farmers if they uh, do speak out against the supermarkets. Uh, yeah, one of the advantages, again, of the way this inquiry will operate is we have complete ability to retain confidentiality over any of the information we've provided with. So that is very important in terms of reassuring anyone who wants to provide us with information or submit documents that uh, we can and uh, regularly do. We do these inquiries on a routine basis and there is quite strong confidentiality obligations on us to the extent that we can potentially end up having to go to jail if uh, we uh, in a, release the information which we shouldn't. So um, that provides some assurance that uh, if people do want to submit information confidentiality, in confidentially, that will be respected. You mentioned earlier some of the powers that the ACCC has in an inquiry like this. Will you be asking to look at the contracts and pay negotiations between the supermarkets and individual farmers? We haven't uh, got to the detail yet, but uh, typically, uh, uh, well, to give you an example, in 2018, we conducted a detailed inquiry into the dairy industry, and that's precisely what it involved. It involved looking at all the contractual arrangements between suppliers and dairy processors, um, getting to the bottom of exactly what prices were being paid for milk and how the contracts were structured, where the risk was and uh, coming to some conclusions out of that. So that's what we've done in the past in these sort of inquiries and it would be likely we would head in that direction, I suspect. A key part of this inquiry has been the concern from not only consumers but also farmers about the disparity between what farmers are getting at the farm gate and what consumers are paying at the checkout. So how will you be navigating that part of the investigation? Uh, well, we the powers that we have under the inquiry mean we can seek information from a range of parties. So it wouldn't necessarily just be the supermarkets. Uh, for example, uh, it may extend to wholesalers in the fruit and vegetable sector. It may extend to uh, abattoirs and processors in the red meat sector. So it, it gives us a fairly wide discretion. And we have to be careful because we don't want to subject people to unnecessary and, and bureaucratic process. But if we need the information to uh, understand absolutely what's happening in a particular supply chain, the reference we have from the government uh, provides us with those powers. On that point, different commodity groups have different supply chain challenges. So how will the inquiry handle uh, the meat industry, for example, versus horticulture? 
absolutely. We we need to. It's not. Uh, I mean, I, we often speak of the supermarket sector, but uh, as everyone knows, uh, you know, sometimes they have eight or ten thousand different product lines. Um, the main ones from the agricultural perspective are obviously the meat and the fruit and vegetables, and they are dramatically different supply chains. And we're well aware of that. We've done a lot of work over the years. Uh, we have the horticulture code we look after. We have the food and grocery code we look after. We have the dairy code that we look after. So we have pretty good expertise in the very different natures of those different supply chains. And that means we won't take a blanket approach. It means we will look at those different supply chains uniquely and make sure we understand and get to the bottom of what's happening in them. Deputy Chair of the ACCC, Mick Keogh, speaking there with Jane McNaughton. It's 18 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Or to Australia Day Awards now and the Rural Mental Health Advocate has been awarded an Order of Australia Medal for his service to the community. John Harper farms at Stocking Bingle near Wagga Wagga and is founder of Mate Helping Mate, a self-help program for country people that are suffering from mental illness. Mr Harper says his approach to boosting mental health in regional areas revolved around a pretty simple philosophy. For in the bush... Who the hell do we listen to? And often we listen to the advice or information given to us by our peers, our our mates. The philosophy, I suppose, comes back to the fact that mates, we understand mates subconsciously as people who will share and care about you in the good times, but they also definitely care about you in the bad times. I suppose it all just revolves around that and as I said it's interesting that our mates and people within our community do have a lot of wisdom and knowledge in regards to getting through life's challenges whether they're physical or mental. How did you actually come to be involved in mental health advocacy? (laughs) Because I got bit on the pardon language asked by the black dog. Most things, I think, in the bush and rural Australia, we learn from experience. I think somebody said that the best teacher is your last mistake. So I got bit by depression and everything else, and more by good luck than good management, I came through it. And upon reflection, I realised that it was mates that saved me. And mates included my wife, you know, who many people don't think of as your best mate but they are but like the footy club in Tamora so I'm sitting there in depression because I'd retired from shearing and thought I'm a useless piece of whatever and of no value and then of course my wife valued me and my kids valued me but that was really hard but then the Tamora rugby club came down and asked me to be involved with coaching and mentoring teams and coaches and stuff well of course Well, it wasn't, of course, I jumped at it, but I did. I got off me bum and did that, and that was one of the best things that I ever did. So I got on top of my stuff, 
and doing it and being involved in football and running and all the good things that build up your mental well-being again until I had, uh, you know, a wife of a friend of mine pull me up one day and just said about a husband and I realised he was struggling big time, you know, and I couldn't understand it. And she said, it's all right for you, you're running off playing footy and doing all this stuff. So then I realised I could help this fella. And that's what I did. In helping one bloke, I came to realise that he wasn't the only fellow struggling in our area. They all did. You were on the National Drought Task Force, so could you mind just tell me, I mean, was that a big part of your advocacy? Like, what, uh, what I suppose, were you advocating on as part of that task force? Well, there was all different levels in what I was trying to do. So they asked me to present to the task force and this is some of this is about how many of us in the bush are feeling low and flat because we think nobody else particularly those on the other side of the range politicians big organizations value us poor little jokers in the bush so this major general stephen day had relations from laos who told them about John Harper doing good in shearing sheds and stuff. So he thought, oh, I've got to hear what this fella's got to say. So we go through all the process, and they actually took on board three of my recommendations. So we had five. The cultures or the totems that I find really important to me is nation, community, family, and personal, which are the same, I've discovered, as the Wiradjuri nation of our First Nations people. The order of them changes for everybody. And it's interesting that all the good work that I have been recognised for actually comes from the fact that I feel that family is most important. My goal in life is to have my girls, my daughters and my grandkids to be better people, better Australians than me. And I realised that if I wanted that to happen, I couldn't just tell them what to do, I had to action it. And that's the core of John Harper. OAM recipient Riverina Farmer and mental health advocate John Harper speaking there to Lucas Forbes. It's 23 minutes past 12 on the country hour. Well, in the thick of the Hunter Wine Country, a leading family business will be celebrating today as one of the owners of Tullock Wines is honoured with the Medal of the Order of Australia. John Tullock is a third-generation vigneron and says there was never any question he was going to follow in the family footsteps if you don't mind the odd Vordello, it's uh, one of those varieties that you can in part thank him for being on the uh, shelves at the local wine store. John Tullock, OAM, sat down with our reporter Amelia Bernasconi to reflect on his achievement and the history of the Tullocks in the wine industry, which dates all the way back to 1895. Back when it was founded, winemaking in the Hunter Valley on many parts of Australia had not changed and in the context, we didn't get uh, uh, electric power here in 1956, so it was hand pumps and the uh, crushes and so on ran off a single-cylinder diesel motor with a whole lot of uh, pulleys and belts flapping around the place. And if uh, you wanted to uh, disengage something, you got a broom handle and force the leather belt off the pulley. Uh, so that changed from uh, uh, 1956 and my father was in charge then. My grandfather died in 1940, uh, and he got some new equipment, new crusher, new press, a refrigeration plant, and so forth. 
and uh, he also was very instrumental in uh, establishing the label that we know today, which we're looking at over there in the, the shelf. Pr prior to that, we made wine, it was sold to the other big companies, sold in bulk, and as far as the business concerned here, a lot of it was fortified wine, which I think most people like to try and forget at the moment, but uh, he, he stayed in business by making fortified wine, uh, and in that regard we've got the old still that came from Cessnock in the 1880s, uh, and I've still got it put, put away, and I'd like to be able to, at some stage, put it in a position that could recognise the, the importance of the industry. At any rate, my father uh, established the, the label we see over there, and the restaurateur from Sydney named Johnny Walker and he uh, were friends and Johnny Walker wanted the wine bottled under his label and my father said no it's going to be under my label so it was 1952 uh, it was established the label Colburn Dry Red which I would say without too much doubt eventually put uh, Colburn on the map because it was uh, top wine in restaurants and so forth and used to sell at the same price as Grange Hermitage. Unfortunately we've let, let things slip then, it's nowhere near that price today. Uh, the early 60s, you mentioned you just finished school and you came out here. Was there ever any question that you wouldn't follow in your father's footsteps? At what age did you know that this was the career path for you? <laughs> well I went to boarding school in Sydney uh, for uh, six years and most of the boarders there were sons of uh, people on the land from the, all over New South Wales and up into Queensland and virtually all of them were going back to do something on the place so I, I suppose I fell into that and I didn't really uh, think of anything else to do uh, and I didn't think much of school for that matter either but uh, there we are. John Tullock, OAM, can you pinpoint some of your proudest achievements from wh whether it was a part of those boards or maybe something smaller that maybe others didn't think of but you knew that that small thing you did led to huge change or something you're really proud of? Oh, I don't think I can nominate any particular event but uh, just the presence of that and trying to in influence things in one way or another I think is, is the main point. Vidello as a variety uh, we've grown it for a long, long time and it never really got anywhere. So well, we, we blended, yes, and then uh, one particular year, I think in the 80s, that we made the Badello and we couldn't get it to ferment right out completely. It had some, some uh, sweetness left. Uh, so we decided to bottle that separately and it was a great success at the cellar door. So then we developed it to uh, into the... the uh, open market and with a lot of hard work and pounding the pavement in Sydney with the agents we got Vidello accepted and now we'd be the leading Vidello producer in Australia uh, and it's gone on from there and it is now widely known. And so you're among the first producers of Vidello? In, in a, in a, in a, uh, a marketable sense, mm. commercial sense yes. It's one of the uh, earliest varieties that was introduced to the hunter way back nearly 200 years ago. You're being a little bit humble here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible to pioneer a whole variety of wine. 
Well, yes, it was. I, I didn't really look to that way so much, but you, you've got a vineyard there producing grapes, you make it into wine, and you, you, then you've got to sell it. And uh, that's what my main stream in life. I've been uh, not a flamboyant person trying to uh, set the world on fire, but just keep everything rolling along and make and make the, the business profitable. And that's why I guess we're still here. That's John J. Tullock, OAM, who's owner and director of Tullock Wine, speaking there to Amelia Bernasconi. Uh, he says uh, he also thanked his wife, Julia, for always being by his side and often not getting all the recognition that she deserves. And his two daughters, Christina and Justina, are uh, also still involved pretty heavily in the family business as well. It's coming up to 29 minutes past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, around Australia, there's been other people nominated and receiving Australia Day honours, recognising their contributions to rural and regional communities. Among them is Dr Jan Tennant, whose work has helped connect the worlds of human health research, farming and business. The work that we were doing there was to understand how bacteria were able to attach to the epithelial cells within the human body And I worked on that for three years with the goal of understanding what it was that made those bacteria a risk and a problem for for humans. When I returned to Australia at the end of that postdoctoral research, I was fortunate enough to um, begin work with the CSIRO in, in its division of animal health. And the particular project that I got to work on was an infection of cows' eyes called pink eye which many uh, faith of your listeners will be very familiar with. It's a very common um, problem here in Australia, particularly amongst our um, white-faced cattle, subject to a lot of wind and a lot of solar assault in their eyes. And so it was my science that got me, my human health science, that got me into animal health science. So it's not the case that, you know, you grew up on a farm or kind of had been interacting with a lot of producers before that research project, so you really just dived in. That's absolutely true, but it was working with CSIRO was that fascinating um, interface between the science and the laboratory and the producers. So what I learned in those early days was to actually listen and learn and understand what the producers' issues were, what were the challenges that they were dealing with on their farms and in their production um, systems and setups that were actually causing, um, you know, points of stumble, I suppose, just to, to put it simply. But things that were um, reducing productivity, that were impacting negatively animal welfare, um, all of those sorts of things. And so I learnt to understand why research was important and why also applied research was the important thing to be doing to understand the question that needed a solution and then go back to the lab, design the work in such a way that the outcomes had more likelihood of being positive and beneficial to the end users, both the, the animals themselves directly but also to the, to the farmers and to the producers. That's Dr Jan Tennant, who is uh, with uh, APM, which is Animal Health. Uh, She's a non-executive director and, uh, as we just heard, an OAM recipient. She was talking there to Faith uh, Tabelujam. 
It's coming up to 28 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Shortly we'll get the latest on the weather details. Uh, It's pretty hot, but I gather there's a change on the way. We'll find out what's happening with that shortly from the Bureau. But uh, first of all, Jessica Kidd's got the news headlines. Good afternoon. Hi, Michael. The federal government says it will work with the crossbench to pass its redesigned Stage 3 tax cuts as the opposition refuses to say whether it will support or block them. The Prime Minister unveiled the changes to the planned Stage 3 cuts yesterday, which increased the size of cuts for low- and middle-income Australians at the expense of higher earners. Wheelchair racer Madison Di Rosario has taken out the Ausday 10-kilometre race in Sydney. It's the 10th time the two-time Paralympic gold medalist has taken out the coveted coveted event. Japan's Sho Watanabe finished first in the men's division. The CIA will reportedly be involved in talks on a second potential Gaza hostage deal in the coming days. US and Israeli officials are set to meet with their Egyptian and Qatari counterparts for negotiations. Nearly 260,000 people have been cut off from accessing health care, education and other essential services in Mongolia as the country struggles through an especially cold and snowy winter. Temperatures have plunged below minus 30 degrees in the Central Asian country, with around 100,000 nomadic children separated from their families as they stay in school dormitories or with relatives. And it's a stark contrast to parts of New South Wales, which are baking under heatwave conditions, although a cool and gusty change is expected to bring relief over the weekend. There's a severe heatwave warning in place for large parts of the state and a warning for extreme heatwave conditions on the mid-north coast. And there's an extreme fire danger warning in place for the greater hunter. Michael? But a change on the way, thankfully, by as, yes. as we will find out in a moment from uh, the Bureau of Meteorology. But I gather, and the other uh, footnote to that uh, Mongolian story is that I gather, I heard on the news this morning on News Radio, that 65,000 cattle have died. That's right, yes. In Mongolia as well, yes. which is... That's huge. I it mean, is. because they rely and, and it's enormously. It's their way of life. Yeah, They've got absolutely. these huge herds. And when you're mm. looking at temperatures like that, it must be so hard. And mm. just the struggle that those nomadic herds face. Mm, incredible. Mm. Yeah. And, and incredible uh, weather that they're seeing there and elsewhere <laughs> lately as well. Uh, Jessica, thanks for that. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Uh, Je- Jessica Kidd. With the news headlines there, it's uh, 25 minutes to one. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details now. And Gabriel Woodhouse is there, but uh, no minus 30 degrees Celsius here in Australia, Gabrielle. No, in fact, I'd say the exact opposite for mm. New South Wales. It's very hot conditions <laughs> yep. across the, uh, the northern part. So um, we're already uh, getting up to about 40 degrees out near Burke at the moment and uh, into the high 30s through parts of the Hunter where we do have that uh, uh, fire weather warning for extreme fire danger today. So a very, very different story in New South Wales compared to what's happening in Mongolia. Mm. And set to continue, but a change on to later on today, but a change is sort of moving through now, is it? Yeah, so at the moment we've got that cold front um, that's uh, across the southern half of New South Wales at the moment and it's just starting to move up along the Illawarra coast. So we're expecting that to move further north and by this evening get up towards the mid-north coast, but it is going to weaken as it reaches the, the far northeast during the day tomorrow. So with that we will be seeing uh, a little bit of relief for the heat, but tonight it is still going to be quite warm um, right across the northeast quarter ahead of that change. Okay, so that change will see a significant drop in temperature. Are we going to see much rain? 
Rainfall, um, we've seen a little bit of rain um, right across the south where Threadrow's picked up 30 millimetres of rain in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, but uh, right now uh, on the radar we're seeing just a couple of light showers that might not quite be reaching the ground um, across parts of the southern tablelands and in the central west, but what we'll see for later this evening is um, a few more showers developing uh, along the southern parts of the coast, and then tomorrow it's more likely that we'll see showers and storms across the northeast quarter, and they'll continue into Sunday as well, and both days looking at uh, seeing the potential for some uh, severe thunderstorms to develop with some localised bursts of heavy rainfall. So hit and miss of thunderstorm activity. You might get some rain, you might not. Exactly. Unfortunately, um, the, the more likely area is going to be right across the, the New England area and potentially towards the, the northern slopes as well. And rainfall totals generally of the order of you know 10 to 20 millimetres. But uh, as you know, underneath those storms as well, we'll be more likely to pick up those sorts of values or even a little bit more. And you've been tracking that uh, tropical cyclone as well. So any more uh, intelligence on where that might head once it's uh, sort of wreaked havoc in uh, over Townsville? Yeah, so that system uh, crossed the coast last night and has been downgraded to just a low-pressure system and it's over Queensland at the moment and it's still expected to move a little bit further west over the coming days. So at this stage it's not looking likely that it's going to affect the northern parts of New South Wales but there is going to be some areas of rain that are going to extend across the southern parts of Queensland and with that uh, next week when we see a trough start to develop over western New South Wales that's when we might see the increased risk of of some thunderstorms um, across the northern inland. So at this stage the um, bulk of the rainfall associated with that uh, system is going to be confined further north up through Queensland. Okay so it might feed a little bit in but not much. Yeah. Okay, Gabrielle, thanks for that. My pleasure. Gabrielle Woodhouse at the Bureau. It's uh, coming up to uh, 22 minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. And uh, getting uh, some more details about uh, people have been honoured on this Australia Day. The New South Wales Rural Fire Service has received Australia Fire Service medals uh, details uh, for a number of people who've been uh, given that award this year. Roberta Colbran, Keith Driver, Michael Gilder, Paul Jones, Barry Myers, George Nicholson, John Page and Barry Richard have received Australian Fire Service medals from the New South Wales Fire Service today on this Australia Day. And uh, getting a few texts too about the ACCC, um, someone's texted in to say, Dave and Trundle's texted in to say, the ACCC's work is actually made easy by just looking at the weekly market prices per kilo for fruit and vegetables and what the supermarkets are selling the same for in their stores. Dave says it's a real eye-opener um, and um, someone has texted in about the investigation saying they want a postal address uh, so they can send anonymous information to the ACCC inquiry about uh, some of the issues they've seen in regards to supermarket and pricing and payments as well. Um, uh, we might uh, get back to you with the details separately to give you the information there if you want to do that. And uh, John is uh, concerned about um, the ACCC. He says uh, uh, he says it, the system actually is favoured towards the, the rich and we need to look at uh, regulation properly uh, to uh, do anything about it. That's, uh, that's in a nutshell what John is saying. It's uh, 21 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. 
Well, let's turn our attention to uh, some of the very best of the nation's rodeo riders, including 100 teenagers. They're in Tamworth at the moment for the 2024 National Finals. Looks as though the uh, all the roads lead to Tamworth at the moment. Now, it's organised by Australian Bushmen's Association, and the action kicked off yesterday and continues up until tomorrow night, Saturday night. Now, Lara Webster took a trip out to the rodeo to meet some of the younger riders who have some very big dreams. With 150 junior competitors from right across the nation vying for the top titles, their enthusiasm and energy is infectious. All of them are dreaming of a career in rodeo, starting with 14-year-old Lacey Bazant from Cowra in New South Wales. I grew up in Sydney with rodeo since I was two. We've been doing it for ages. My dad's a pickup man, so he'll be helping picking up Bronx riders tonight. It was the first time my horse actually ran in this arena, and we did take out the win. And in the breakaway, I did miss my calf, but we've got another two days, and I'm determined to catch it. <laughs> so tell me, what's it taken for you to get here to the Nationals? How much work and time and training goes into that? We train like every single day. Connie and my, so my sister Connie and I would be up the back of roping calves every single afternoon or morning, it depends, throughout the day. And then we'll just be on my, my barrel horse and just work him make sure he remembers what to do and yeah it's a lot of determination you got to really want it what do you think the future looks like for you i reckon the future i like i would like to go over to america for like a couple of years apparently it's really hard over there like the colleges and all that but if that doesn't happen i'll just stay over here in rodeo That's a dream 16-year-old Sophie Edmonds from Marundi also shares. I've been rodeoing for about eight years and I started off in a local barrel race at the Scone Rodeo and from then I just loved it and have continued rodeoing ever since. What is it about rodeo that you love that's just got you hooked? I love the atmosphere and all the like the adrenaline rush when you walk into the arena. It's just amazing. What has it taken to get to the national finals? What's involved in getting this far? I imagine it's a lot of hard work. A lot of travelling. Uh, we've been on the road nearly every weekend this year. Um, my plan is to, in the next couple of years, go to college, rodeo college over in the States. I've just recently qualified for the National High School Rodeo Association finals over in Rock Springs, Wyoming. So while, we're, while I'm over there, I get to check out a few colleges. And my biggest dream is to win a PRCA National Breakaway Roping title. Of course, it isn't all about the barrel racing or breakaway roping. There's plenty of up-and-coming bull riders here too, like Willow Tree's 15-year-old Bailey Searle. Um, I grew up in Goulburn, started getting on potty cars when I was little and just looked up to Dad and I was off from there. Dad was a bull rider for many years. He qualified for the finals 17 times, I think, and rode bulls and bareback horses. So big inspiration. Yeah, yeah, I look up to Dad a lot. Do you remember your first ride on a potty car? Um, I remember my first ride on potty car for the rodeo, Taraga Rodeo, I, um, I actually won it. <laughs> Set you up for success, Bailey. Yeah, yeah, it was good. 
So tell me, how far have you come since that very first ride? What's been involved in perfecting your sport and, and how you perform in it? Oh, well, I try to get on many practice balls as I can during the week and Dad helps me with everything a lot and um, tells me what I do wrong and right, so it's good to have Dad here to help me, yeah. What's your future in the sport look like? Are you going to stay around? Yeah, I want to go to college in America and get a scholarship over there, but, um, yeah, I want to compete in PRCA radios in the States and do what Kai Hamilton just did, so, yeah. ABCRA Executive Officer Craig Young has been watching young up-and-comers over the years, and he says the talent today is remarkable. The uh, facilities, the tech, the way that uh, these kids are looked after, uh, educated, trained... Uh, worked with is uh, a long way in front of where it was, uh, you know, 40 years ago when, or actually nearly a little bit longer, <laughs> when I uh, when I first started having a ride. And uh, you know, it didn't take me long to work out that you know I was a whole lot better at eating them than I was at riding them. So <laughs> I uh, I didn't keep up with it. You know, we've got now a generation of kids that are third gen, fourth generation uh, cowboys and cowgirls that really are born to do it. Some young riders with some big dreams of uh, heading over to the United States and uh, some big prize money over there as well. ABCRA Executive Officer Craig Young ending that report from Lara Webster. It's a quarter to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Rallies underway in some parts of Australia as debate intensifies over the date and purpose of Australia's National Day. Local heroes, you'll hear from some of the community leaders recognised for their service. And more than 1,400 people killed on South Africa's roads over the Christmas New Year period. That's more than Australia's annual road toll. You'll find out what's going on. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. And on the country hour, a farmer in South Australia has used his tractor's GPS system to turn his paddock patriotic with a map of Australia dug in the dirt. Harrison Schuster farms at Freeling and has been trialling using his GPS to draw pictures in the bare paddock with a sunflower last year, making it all the way onto Google Earth. Mr Schuster told Brooke Nindorf that the latest work of art took quite a bit of preparation. Um, it was probably two hours of actual actual field work, and then plus the uh, a few hours of prep work and experimentation before the fact. And so, what do you have to do to to get the paddock prepared for this? So most of the, yeah, like I said, most of the um the time was in the prep work leading up to it. it was actually yeah, almost a hobby, experimenting with um, turning an image into something you can follow on the tractor GPS screen by hand. That was uh, just a few hours, some nights after work. And so, do you set it up on your your GPS? Yes. The, the tractor has a screen that um, shows you where you, are, where you are in the paddock and um, yeah, shows you where you are in the paddock and then yeah, you basically just trace the line and um, lift or raise and lower the implement as you need. This is a map of Australia with the, the flag on it. Uh, how big is it? I'd say that the paddock itself is 130-ish hectares, give or take. And this one, I think, oh, I think it was maybe, turned out to be maybe 50 or 60 hectares total. 
Is, I mean, you've done other ones before. What, what other pictures have you had out in the paddock? Uh, last year was a sunflower, so that's actually that was on Google Earth for quite a few months. It actually still is. So we're hoping that we can get a flyover from one of the um, one of the satellites to sort of immortalise this for a year. That'd be quite um, quite special. Have people picked up on the uh, the sunflower and, and said, "Oh, I saw that on uh, on Google Maps." Yes, yes. So people, yeah, a few people have questioned, "Oh, is this uh, this is where the sunflower is?" So that was sort of a it was a coincidence of experiment experimenting with GPS as a hobby, um, having a paddock the perfect shape for for the country, and then having um, having Australia come up as well. It helps it helps put Freeling on the map as well. It can always some people have thought of it as a bit of a pass through town between two highways. But yeah, sort of, it sort of puts us on the map a bit, which is yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great town in a great country, and it's just I don't know. It's, I've seen just from the the comments just on um, on Facebook that the reception's pretty good. And you've got your initials there. I'm assuming HS is for yeah. uh, for Harrison Schuster. Yes, just in case people didn't believe me, <laughs> <laughs> because there have, have been a couple of times where um, it's been posted and people are like, hang on, this is this is AI, especially nowadays. Yeah, that's right. There is a lot of talk with AI, so it yeah. definitely is out there, Harrison. Yes, it is, yes. <laughs> and so yeah. for people that, that aren't farmers, they, they can see the, the dark lines out there in the paddock. So you, you plan it out. What, what actually is that, that dark line? That's just, um, so right before I started, it was a, a bare paddock, and then the lines are just uh, tilled, um, tilled ground. It's just dirt, yep. There's nothing. It's, it's probably an operation we, we do anyway on some paddocks. So it's yeah, using existing machinery, just uh, performing an existing operation. Do you sort of know what it's going to look like once you're when you're out there, or do you have to wait till you can get up there and, and take a photo? You cannot tell from the from the road. It's um it's very uh yeah the perspective just doesn't do it justice from the road. It just looks like a a bit of a scramble out in the paddock of what's going on here. Definitely piques the curiosity. Yeah, you can only really get a true um, sense of scale once you're up in the air. So who took the photo up in the air? My brother. Yeah. So he he flew in a neighbour's plane um, probably two hours after. a after I tilled it in, just before sunset. And uh, you're pretty impressed with, with how it's turned out? Yes. I was yeah, pleasantly surprised. It's like opening a present. <laughs> and yeah. it, what's what's the next picture going to be, Harrison? I'm not sure. I've got some plans, but yeah, I figured this time, yeah, it's just a perfect sort of um, perfect coincidence to get a hobby, the right paddock size, a, um, and the flag of the best, best place on earth. Freeling farmer Harrison Schuster speaking there with Brooke Nindorf. And you can uh, see a photo of that map in the paddock at abc.net.au slash rural and uh, read all about it as well. It's uh, coming up to nine minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, after more than seven months, the Northern Rivers Livestock Exchange and Casino is set to reopen the gates next Friday for its first sale. The Casino Auctioneers Association signed contracts late yesterday with Outcross Agri-Services, the new lessee, operating the council-owned facility. The agents and producers using the yards can now expect to pay a little bit more, but the industry says it's relieved to be moving forward. Kim Honan is speaking here to the Association's President, Andrew Somerville. We've signed the agreements. It's been a fairly good process. We've, you know, had open discussion all the way through it, and it's it's uh, been good open dialogue right through to get to the position we are, so it's nice to uh, be getting back to work. Have all five agents uh, signed these new contracts? Is everyone back in the yards? Yeah, that's correct. All the agents have been invited back and, and are coming back, so that's great to see. And how long do these uh, agreements run for? How long are they in place? 
So this agreement, I believe, is about a 17-month agreement. Then we'll go again from there. And council had wanted agents to pay yard fees of 0.2% of gross revenue, a change from the $1 per head. Um, what will you be paying with these new agreements without cross? Yeah, so we've adopted the 0.2 percentage charge, as was discussed earlier in negotiations. We have adopted that as agents. Agents had a list of 60 or so schedules or clauses in the Richmond Valley Council new selling agreements um, that um, you, d- you didn't agree with or, or had wanted to discuss. Um, were these raised in negotiations with Outcross? Yeah, so the new selling agreements we've got with Outcross are, are totally different to the agreements we're looking at with, uh, with the Council. So you're, you're happy with these new sell- selling agreements? Yeah, we are. Yeah. And how do they differ then than the ones that council presented agents with last year? Oh, I think we'd take up the whole country hour if I was to go right through it, but it's a um, significant difference. It's it's a totally different look to what we were looking at. And is it more because it's a, a focus on industry, that they have this experience or already running yards that they've brought to these selling agreements? Yeah, look, I think the selling agreement we're on now is more industry relevant. It's um, it's probably, you know, an approach that we can work with and and is workable. So it's it's certainly more relevant to what we're doing and, and the industry for sure. So who will be responsible for the delivery of stock once it's sold? Outcross or the agents? So that'll be that'll be done in conjunction. Outcross are gonna employ the staff, but the agents will still be part of that process. And are you happy with that decision? Yeah, we're comfortable with where it's at. Yep. Yeah. And will there be any increases to the fees cattle producers pay? Yeah, so there will be an increase in fees to, to all parties within the agreement. Um, the cattle producers will, will wear a CPI charge of about 5% on the original yard dues that we were looking at prior to the 30th of June. And there's a $1.18 scanning fee. And the agents have adopted the, the 0.2% uh, turnover charge as well. So, so what does that mean for a cattle producer, say, selling a $1,000 animal? What sort of increase? Look, I'm not great at maths, but that's probably $1.50 a head, Dira. And have you had discussions with producers about that increase? Yeah, so we've had discussions with the producer group that formed during the standoff, and they all, they're all happy with the, with the fees and keen to get us back to work. Yes, talking about those changes here, it's been a long time coming. In fact, uh, seven months uh, to try and get the Northern Rivers Livestock Exchange and Casino up and running again. That was Andrew Somerville, the outgoing president of the Casino Auctioneers Association. Now, the first sale is a store sale. It's being held next Friday, February the 2nd, and the first fat sale the Wednesday, the following the 7th of February. Now, the agents will hold their final combined fat sale in Lismore next Wednesday on the 31st day of January. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to five minutes to one. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, hundreds of people have turned out in Bombala for Australia Day celebrations, uh, including turning up to uh, witness the New South Wales Strong Wall Championships. Adrian Reardon is there and uh, filed this report. Um, Scott Mooring, I'm the president of the Bombala Events Committee, which organises today's celebration. What a turnout, huh? Yeah, it's a good 
turnout, yeah. How many people here, you reckon? Uh, I'll just talk to the gate and there's 350 through already, so. Oh, wow, okay. Yep. Not bad weather as well. There's a heat wave happening elsewhere. We're doing yeah. all right. Yeah, no, it's a, yeah, a bit of sunshine would be nice, but anyway, we'll deal with what we've got. Yeah, we were worried about the rain there for a second, weren't we? Yeah, yeah, had a bit of trouble getting the sheep here this morning without getting them wet. But... Where are all these shearers hailing from? Lombala, mostly? Uh, there's a lot of local shearers. There's a few from around Cooma and Dalgetty as well, yeah. Nice, and varying in age? Yeah, varying in age. There's, uh, I think, 17 is the youngest today, and then it'll go up to over 70, some of them, so, yeah. Scott, do you have a fair bit of experience shearing sheep yourself? Uh, yeah, I was a shearer for 14 years, yeah. All right, that's decent. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to get back into the ring? Yeah, I'm having a go in the open today, so... Are you? Yeah. Oh, you're about to go then? Yeah, I'm about to shear shortly. Oh, I better wrap this no, up. No, that's all right. <laughs> Um, how good is it to see the turnout like this today? Oh, it's great, yeah. It's, uh, there's a lot of work put in by the committee for the day and it's good to see people come and enjoy themselves, so yeah. Yeah, my f- uh, first name's Stephen Platts. What's your role here today, Stephen? Uh, my role is the, uh, on the mic, the uh, MC. Yeah. Yeah, I'm part of the committee. You're MC in the sheep shearing competition? In the sh- yes, in the sheep shearing, yes. What a crowd. Yes, big crowd. We were a bit worried today because we thought with the long weekend and the weather we might not have got as many but we've, we've got a good crowd here now. Yeah we started with the intermediate, yeah the young guys are uh, just not long out of learning and uh, yeah they're going well and we've just finished our seniors which are uh, fairly well experienced, probably been cheering 10 or 12 years. Is the big competition the open round? It is yeah, the open's yeah, the very big competition, good prize money. What kind of experience do people in the open round have? Uh, they've got a lot of experience, a lot of shows, a lot of uh, competitions all over the state and, and down into Victoria. Yeah, and been cheering for a lot of years. Now you open. yourself, what kind of experience do you have, Stephen? <laughs> uh, I shore for 20 odd years. I used to cheer in the shows years ago, yeah. I heard there's a uh, veteran category? <laughs> yes, there's a veteran, yeah. There'll be probably a few of us older blokes will have a go later, yeah. Yep. yeah. Feeling keen for that? Oh, <laughs> a bit nervous, yeah. When was the last time you sh- shorn a sheep? Oh, probably a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, not that far out of retirement no. then, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah, it's drawing a big crowd. Why do you think this is such a popular event for Bombala? Because uh, the wool industry is a big big part of our, our uh, rural economy up here, so, yeah, and we've, it's, it revolves around timber and, and wool. Sheep and cattle up here, so yeah, hundreds turning out there in Bombala for the Australia Day celebrations, including that uh, shearing competition and the uh, New South Wales Strong Wool Championship as well. Adrian Reardon with that report, and uh, just on the H4C, we've got uh, another comment coming through uh, talking about uh, these uh, inquiries and saying, not sure that uh, these inquiries are going to make any difference really because uh, they seem like they can be a bit of a waste of time Uh, and uh, they make the point about the consumer price gouging in fuel prices and there was an inquiry into that Uh, of course nothing came of that and uh, they were saying that um, uh, people are still getting ripped off at the Bowser at uh, near the two dollar a litre mark so a little bit of scepticism about whether or not uh, the ACCC inquiry uh, will actually uh, come with any uh, any uh, changes to uh, the supermarket pricing regime. You're listening to The Country Hour. We're heading up to news time. And one o'clock.